Hello and welcome to Cartel Aristocrats Cast number 103. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, GatheringMagic.com and CoolStuffInc.com, who have partnered with us to give away free $25 gift certificates. With free shipping on orders of $100 or more, a sweet 25% buy list bonus, and their ever-popular customer, customer rewards program, CoolStuffInc.com is a store for all of your Magic the Gathering needs. I'm Jeremy, and I'm joined this week with my co-host, as usual, Ed Wynn of Dragon Gaming, Travis Allen of MTGPrice.com, and Jim Casali of uh, Modern Nexus and uh, GatheringMagic.com. How you doing, you just, guys? Do you just make up new things, new places that people work at every single week? Like, Well, Ed got hired at a new place, and it has Dragon in the name, so close enough. Ed, would you like to refute that point? Um. No, let, let's let's move on. All right. Yeah, let's let's move on. Travis, how you doing this week? Uh, I'm peachy keen. Ed, are we going to answer your question on cast? What question? The one that you posted in chat. Oh God, no, no, <laughs> no. I, I mean, we could, right? That, that's that's just going to lead to like the entire. That's going to be the entire episode. The entire episode is going to be. Uh, yeah, let's, let's, go on. let's go on. Maybe we'll do it at the end if we have time. So M19 came out with everything, and there's good value, and the set doesn't completely suck, and the art's good. What are your thoughts on it now that it's been completely spoiled? Uh, I think it has a really good blend of like reprints and also new cards to keep people interested. The new Elder Dragons are definitely unique and exciting for some people. And the Escape Shift, Omniscience, and Crucible Worlds of Reprints are also exciting for other people. So I think they did a pretty good job of this set having just kind of something for everyone, which is not always the case. And um, recently with Master Sets especially has been not the case. A lot of people have just not been happy with what has been in there. I've uh, traditionally been a fan of core sets. I think kind of like the beginning of like the m series back in like m10 m11 like i think the design of it was kind of flawed and i think they've slowly moved away from just having like super simplified back to basics magic and kind of ramping it up while still keeping that in theme um it's a very very good entry point i think magic origins uh and m15 like they were both like reasonably well designed sets they were like limited was fine um they had like that interesting mechanics or new things are added, kind of where core nineteen is at. Um, it's in a good spot. There's definitely like a mix of uh, there's there's clearly cards that are designed for casual play. There are like some very very potent sideboard cards. We have the reprints of Crucible and Scape Shift. Um, you know they have the the cool new things like Nickel Bulls, kind of keeping with the story theme. Uh, Johnny's there, kind of as kind of setting up to see what. The falls that looks like it's all part of the story. There's like a little bit of something for everyone, and I think that kind of is a critical part of what a magic set should look like. Um, like for people like us, like we might not necessarily follow like the story, but I think like the story is actually a bigger part of the game than like necessarily what we just give it credit for. Um, like like clearly Dominaria, like definitely like like nailed it like there's a lot of like throwbacks there's a lot of things that people can relate to that just made people care more about the set than necessarily it's just like are these cards good are these cards bad was it, are the mechanics good are the mechanics bad etc so i'm definitely pretty excited for core 19 when it comes out it's a very cool looking set uh seems to recapture a lot of the energy that m10 did when that first released uh, where you get to see the cool new cards, some juicy reprints. It's a good on-ramp for new players. So I like it, its positioning, and it would probably be even better received if it wasn't on the heels of Dominaria, which is also considered to be an excellent set. Um, it seems like it's going to be good product going forward as long as they are able to keep it in line with their vision. Um, I would ex I expect it to last probably not as long as the old core sets did. You know, we had M10 through, what was the last one? M16, 15. M15 and then Origins was the last one, which is like M16. So I actually think we'll get, so that would be seven core sets. I actually think we'll get less than seven before they discontinue it or change it. Um, but I think 
they seem to have a pretty good idea of where they want it to be for now. Uh, the real trick will be staying away from reprints because they kind of basically said they're going to use that as a vehicle for rares and mythics to bring back cards that uh, they want to bring back, but are a little are a little weird. Um, you're gonna, they're going to look for cards that are sort of more basic in their templating. So noticeable escape shift and crucible are fairly simple cards uh, contrasted with something like Liliana the Veil, which is much more complex. So, you know, when this time comes next year and you're trying to decide what to get out of the way of uh, for the impending core set, um, it's going to be rares and mythics and need to reprint that aren't complicated. What that means is something like through the breach, I would consider a really bad candidate for core set. Yeah, I agree with Travis there. Like, definitely cards that have keywords are less likely to be reprinted in these core sets that are coming back. So through the reach, because it has splice onto Arcane, it's more likely to be in a master set than it is a core set. I agree. I don't really have anything else to add on that. I don't think we'll know what reprints are coming. I certainly would not have picked Scape Shift to be in M19, and I definitely got blown out by that. Um, Crucible seemed okay, but we'll see what happens with the next couple of core sets when they do that, because now they have to juggle a potential Eternal Masters 2 on top of M20 and balance reprint equity well enough that both sets will sell uh, for next year. And we might even have MM19 next year as well. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Uh, I mean, we could just see Imperial Seal um, finally in something for equity or Demonic Tutor at Mythic in something for equity. So it'll be interesting to see exactly what they do to, to uh, reprint next year's slew of cards and especially with the market starting to fall price ways uh halfway through the year it's going to be interesting to see where prices are in december relative to last year when just across the board everything fell are you talking about demonic tutor in standard or in one of the eternal masters eternal masters too yeah yeah because that's not that card's not ending up in that's simple but they're still not putting on the core side <laughs> No, I agree. I just think if there's an Eternal Masters 2, you put that Imperial Seal and like some other stuff in there. Yeah, I think Demonic Tutor is a good place to start for sure. I, I, I was just assuming that they would have reprinted modern, uh, Demonic Tutor in the last three Master sets. So at this point, I'm just expecting any you know. So is there uh, anything else you in particular wanted to talk about, Jeremy? Because we haven't talked about... Uh, the sales tax thing that affects not me. You not hear me? No, you were muted. You muted yourself. Oh. Whoops. Um, yeah, so I think it's less about the sales tax until more states pass legislation. Uh, for those who don't know, the Supreme Court ruled um, that states have the right to tax businesses that don't actually that aren't incorporated in their business. The only one right now is South Dakota. If you do over $100,000 in business in South Dakota and it's 200 or more business transactions, you have to pay sales tax. Um, I think within a year, a lot of states, especially with uh, how the way the global economy is shaken out now with tariffs, which we'll get into in a second without politicizing it, um, a lot of states are gonna jump onto that and we'll see what happens. Uh, but the bigger thing that affects both Ed and I is, uh, as of last week, the European Union now has 10% tariffs on magic cards if you're bringing them in for a GP or if you're just uh, like bringing them in to sell to someone, even if you're not a vendor. And Canada's goes into effect on July 1st, which is next week. And there's three more Canadian GPs um, this year specifically. I thought we were done with Canadian GPs. We still have Vancouver, Montreal, and one other one, I believe, this year. Uh so it's going to be real interesting it, it, to see what happens when it's just import. A, it's just so two. There's it's two? Canadian. Yep. Okay. We've got two Canadian ones and there's two left. All right. But either way, uh, on top of vendors having to pay, uh, declaring their stuff, paying an amount, and then getting reimbursed when they leave with whatever they have left, they now have to pay a flat 10% import fee, which is obscene. Uh, so that's going to start hurting the already ravaged Canadian economy, I guess, because the prices for Canadians are normally okay when U.S. vendors go up there, um, but it's going to be a little bad for them uh, when they have to not only have a weak dollar versus the U.S. dollar, and then on top of that, they also have to now spend more on their cards um, because there's really not that many giant 
shops in Canada. It's like face to face and a couple other guys. So we'll see what happens. But um, as far as flying to Europe for GPs, I was like planning on going to a couple more this year. Uh, it's going to be a lot harder uh, margins wise without having to pass those costs on to consumers. And it, it definitely hurts arbitrage. Luckily, Japan hasn't passed anything like that yet. Um, but it, this is not going to help the economy and it's definitely not going to help arbitrage uh, for just people who are trying to make. So that's just my thoughts on it. Ed, what do you think? Because you also deal with this a lot. Uh, I think I think the EU thing is definitely like a pretty big deal. Um, like I, it's one of those things where hmm, trying to think of how how, how I can best phrase this. Um, Use you just sounded like a complete robot there. I did not hear a single thing you said. Use the word allegedly a lot. That might help. Okay. Um, so anyone who has traveled internationally, uh, there is a customs process. Whenever you enter a country, you have an immigration form and a customs form. The customs form has generally the same questions. Are you bringing in commercial merchandise? Are you bringing in food? Uh, have you been in contact with livestock, etc.? Are you bringing in... Uh, are you bringing in any goods excess of the duty-free allotment or excess of whatever amount? 10,000 that... euros. No, in, in terms of like actual product. In excess of oh, like... Sorry. Yeah, in the US it's like $800. In Japan it's like uh, two, uh, 200,000 yen. In the EU it's like 1,000 euros. And then are you bringing in more than a certain amount of monetary... Uh, monetary pieces, whether it be physical currency, checks, whatever, in excess of some digit, some amount of 10,000. It's it's either 1 million yen, uh, it's 10,000 euros, 10,000 pounds, or 10,000 USD. Um, if you say yes to any of these things, uh, they'll ask you, what are you declaring? Um, and then you go through a separate line. If you have money, you have to usually explain where the money came from, why do you have this money, what's the purpose of this money, if you have goods, which is where this comes into play, um, you'll usually be taxed. They'll ask you, what goods are you bringing in? Uh, and this is to protect uh, the uh, the economies at home, uh, wherever it is, because people can, in theory, like countries like Brazil, their import tax is very high. Um, so one common thing that people do for things like electronics is people will frequently it's it's cheaper for people to in Brazil fly from like Sao Paulo or Rio Rio wherever they live and book a ticket to the United States buy the product in the United States and then fly back that's cheaper for them to do that rather than buy the electronic itself in Brazil because the import tax is so high um that and happens in, a lot in Florida especially and Whenever you're doing this internationally, you, whenever you're coming back to your home country, and if you bring something back in excess in the U.S. at $800, if you're bringing back something, um, you need to be paying taxes on it because you're basically undermining the U.S. economy by importing something and not paying taxes on it. Because every vendor, you know, like whether no matter what it is, if they're outsourcing, if they're outsourcing their product when it's made in China, overseas, wherever, there's import tax to be paid. Uh, they pay that tax. And it's worked into the price of the goods. We don't pay the import tax because we're buying goods directly from Amazon, Walmart, wherever. They've already paid their import taxes. Um, so in the case that's coming up here is the EU is imposing this automatic 10% tariffs on all goods. Um, so if you're bringing in, you know, if you're bringing in, you know, vendors are bringing in how much we can add, we can, you know, throw numbers around how much, much their stock is. If you're bringing in a case of worth of dual lands, you're bringing in $50,000 in like a 500 count box, for example. If you owe 10% on that, that's that's $500. I imagine most vendors are probably bringing in well over $50,000. Can, can, can we do basic math? 10% of 50000 It's 5000 Jesus Christ, I'm sorry. Yeah, that. I'm, yeah, $5,000. Well, your read of it didn't even make it sound that bad. <laughs> yeah, mo most vendors bring in well in excess of $50,000. Um, if, like, if you look, I mean, if you, this isn't rocket science, go like look at go look at showcases. Like, 
I would say the cheapest GP showcase is probably like $150,000. The most valuable GP showcases are probably well over half a million dollars. Um, do do the math. Like 10% is going to be a lot. That's going to make it very, very hard for people to be importing these goods into the EU. Um, and that's kind of where it affects Jeremy and I. So, uh, Especially because I have gone out there and said that I am legally declaring everything at every country I go to. Because as a business, it's a lot easier to just shrug off the uh, the cost and like write it off as a business expense because I'm not employing people at Grand Prix and I'm not paying for a booth. So I have way less cost than the average GP vendor. So for me, it's fine to declare it at customs and just pay the the tax when I went to London or whatever and just move on from there. Well, this is also a big deal for the people that live there, right? Like. Things like dual lands, which you know sometimes have arbitrage opportunities abroad, are going to get more expensive for them to get because most of them are still in the United States, right? No, not duels. Duels have been trickling out ever since uh, Japan raised their buy prices. It's bit like I talked about this on the Quiet Speculation podcast. Well, sorry, uh, last week. But there's like, and Ed probably knows this better than me. But there's like a triangle of where dual lands go. It used like duels used to be more expensive in Europe during the recession. So EU imported a lot of power in duels, and then America got more expensive than EU. So lately, people have been arbitraging duels from Europe to North America, and now the Japanese don't have enough duels. So it's going from Europe to America to Japan, which is why a lot of vendors with Japanese connections were importing, were buying at like Vegas, for example, and then just sending with Japanese vendors overseas to Japan. If that makes sense. So it was following a triangular route. It was going Europe to NA to Japan. Uh, obviously, no one can tell what will happen when Japan either gets enough dual lands or if any one of the three economies start uh, hurting a bit. But that's what it looks like right now from my point of view. Okay. Good to know. I th- I think there's probably like all the duels in the world. Like I think there's probably they're probably in relatively equal proportions if you if you account uh like population size. Like it's it's very obvious like the United States has is the largest shareholder for like magic consumers. The EU is the second largest and Japan is probably the third largest. Places like China are probably fourth. Um they're probably like relatively spread out in that proportion, but if you think of like the population of the U.S. and how many people will be playing Magic versus population of Europe and how many people will be playing uh, Magic, etc., like the proportions are probably pretty close. Uh, obviously, because the game is based in like the game was found in the U.S., like there's probably slightly more duels here relative to that proportion, but it's probably pretty close across the board. Well, that doesn't include some other contents. Like, I'm assuming that South America has basically none. I I, I know nothing about the economy in South America, so I can't. I can't. Ooh, I do. So I had a roommate who was Brazilian that played Magic, and he actually, uh, in order to avoid import taxes, it not illegally doing anything. I'm not saying he did anything illegal. Rather than pay import taxes on his car and all the other stuff he had bought in America while living in America, he traded them all for dual lands, brought them back, paid a lower fee to customs, and then sold them all for more than what uh, it would have cost to import his car. And then he just like bought a local Brazilian car. If that makes sense. So like it was like 10% versus like 30% in import fees. So he converted everything to magic cards and then paid that when he moved back to Brazil and then just went on from there. So, and I, I have a lot of customers that live in South America too. So it's always interesting uh, to ship them cards and still make it worth their time. The customs yeah. thing is, is like, it's always kind of interesting mainly because um, it's one of those numbers that I know a lot of vendors fudge, similar to how vendors fudge the sales tax number in Las Vegas. Uh, I think we talked about this last year. I don't uh, know if allegedly. Allegedly fudged. Allegedly fudged. Um, so anyone who doesn't know, like, it's the same process in GP Las Vegas every year. The Department of uh, Revenue, they come by, like, Thursday morning at the GP. They tell Channel Fireball, uh, hey, here's forms. We need your vendors to fill out these forms. Uh, this is so we can collect sales tax for any sales uh, done during the event. 
Shellfire Wall goes goes around. They hand the forms out to the vendors. Uh, at the end of the day on Sunday, they come back around and then the vendors pay their taxes. Um, the, the, the sales tax. Um, eight point seven percent. Yep, eight point seven percent on whatever sales they made. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail what vendors do and don't, mainly because I wasn't there in Vegas this year, and I don't really want to be uh, saying things about vendors I probably shouldn't. But from what I gather and from my past experience, um, generally, like as long as they're making something, the as long as the state's making something, as long as the government's making something, they're happy. The people that are having problems. Um, are the people that are trying to like claim we made no sales this weekend? You have a giant booth, you have all these cards, you have numbers on them. You're telling me you didn't make sales. Those are the type of people that are going to get into trouble. The same is for the people who are going across international lines and having like five suitcases of check bags. You have five suitcases, and you're going to tell me that you have not more than $800 of value there. That seems unlikely. Um, I've heard of all kinds of like crazy stories regarding customs. Um, yep. I flew I flew back from Washington DC with like 85 booster boxes and I still got asked about it on a domestic flight because I had 85 booster boxes in my checked luggage. So like that's still something you have to be uh, careful of. Right. But luckily so, I had receipts. So anyway, Ed. Right, like it's like if anyone is really concerned about this like like and you're traveling internationally Right, like if you're if you're going to an international grand prix, like you can just say these are personal items, um, and you're there to play. I imagine there like there'll be instances like I've I remember on Twitter someone saying like they were going to a pro tour or a GP or something, and customs asked, "Hey, these are magic cards. What are these worth?" Because that that particular customs officer they knew what Black Lotus was, they knew the value of the Black Lotus. They all automatically assumed that all magic cards had similar value which is clearly which is clearly wrong and i think that's one of the dangers of this um but in if i think if you're fair and i think if you pay something generally they'll be happy and i know a lot of vendors like skirt the line by doing this allegedly uh, allegedly allegedly um skirt this line um, been a while since we've had some honest to god uh libel charges on the show yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not throwing out names, but uh, yeah, but you're, you're skirting the line of uh, things you shouldn't say, so uh, we'll uh, stop uh, it allegedly. I, I, I'm All right, well, I'm happy to stop here. Let's, uh, let's move into the question of the week, since not everyone wants to know about GP finance. I agree. Uh, so our winner this week is Scott Hoffman. He asks, when dealing with higher, older. Higher end cards. What are some good ways to determine a fair price for MP, HP, or damaged cards? It seems like TCG player and eBay completed prices can be all over the place, making it hard to figure out what's reasonable. Thanks for your time. Um, personally, I am of the opinion that as long as they're willing to pay the number that you want, then that's reasonable. Uh, if you want to, how you determine what's reasonable is up to you and the person you're trying to sell to. Uh, things like damaged cards have different values to different people. So trying to put a value on it based on like what it's going for online is probably not fair uh, to do. Like I would probably like people pay more money for a damaged black Lotus than they will like a damaged basic planes, for example, even, even if you take into account a percentage or whatever, they'll pay a larger percentage on cards that are more, more, Valuable, valuable to them. So, uh, I think a little bit of it is just personally. I would just look at the near mint prices or the listed or recently sold prices of similar uh, cards, and then try to figure out between you and the person you want to sell it to what you both think is reasonable. I think a big thing for this is asking people who sell every week. I get a lot of messages from people that like want to know what they should pay on a card and they send me pictures. I do this with Ed too, because believe it or not, I don't know everything. Uh, and neither neither does Ed for that matter. Um, but I'll like message a bunch of I'll message a bunch of vendors and I'll be like, Hey, what have you been selling this on the floor for? And like even on Twitter, you can reach out to a bunch of people and ask. Uh, because you're getting like 20% above actual 
I guess it's technically the actual price that people are paying it, but like if you can sell a uh, collector's edition time walk that's played for 700 on TCG and it's like 400 on eBay, clearly like you shouldn't be spending $650 if someone offers you a played time walk and points to that last sale on TCG when there's still cheaper copies on eBay of the same card. So just do your research, especially when it comes to high-end stuff and ask around and you won't be disappointed. Uh, the biggest problem I have with using eBay is uh, it's a good like level zero starting point, but I hate when people reference eBay because you always have things like um, you always have things like auctions, like things that are at auction always end below buy it nows. Buy it nows are the most accurate uh, measure of what is actually selling. The problem with buy it nows is you have like some inflated prices. You have you know you have random like goobers who have like ten feedback. Like it's like they're clearly using a stock image of a card that they ripped from somewhere else. And they offered like way too big a deal. And it's like, okay, this is clearly 30% below market. There's probably good reason for this, which is why you have, you know, complete price ending all over the place. Um, it, there's no good way. It's, it's simply a matter of doing research. Uh, the more odd, the more odd of an item it is, the harder it's going to be to point a price. Um, like there's no doubt in anyone's mind, like what the price on like, you know, Lyra Dawnbringer should be like, there's infinite data out there. Like, your numbers probably should be within, like, a $2 spread. But when you're asking the price on, like, you know, an MP Lotus, right, the spread is naturally going to be much larger. There's just fewer of them available in the market. Um, when we're talking about conditions, like, you know, an LP an LP standard card, you're losing, like, maybe 5 to 10%. When you're talking about, like, an LP versus a near mint or LP versus MP, like, Lotus or Power, any sort of old school card, you're talking about losing, like, up to 30%. Um, you just have to kind of do your research. Uh, Facebook is kind of kind of my go-to. I generally, if it is a truly an oddball item, I will just type in like unlimited black lotus, for example. Um, see what the trend is like. It's clear that the trend's been going going up. Um, the market looks different to me because I'm at so many grand prix and I see what moves from event to event, and I generally like kind of keep track of these numbers in my head. But for people who are looking online, you can see what pe like. A lot of vendors do sell in the Facebook groups, especially in the high-end group. And you can see, like, a month ago, Black Lotus was at this much. It sold. Um, I even go so far as to message some sellers, like, hey, I saw on your Facebook post that you sold an MP Black Lotus. Like, what price did you get for it at the time? Some people will disclose it. Some people don't. You just kind of have to use these different data points and just kind of, like, feel out a number. If you're unsure, price it high and give yourself some room to, ha uh, to be haggled down because that's usually what most people do anyways. Um, the more accurate you want your price to be, probably the more research it's going to take. And that's just kind of the nature of like these, like older high end cards because they're just kind of the the spread on them is naturally just much larger. Travis, uh, I will point out that there might not be a quote unquote right price because the right price is what you can get for it. So, you know, I'd say, like, oh, it's the type of thing where you can take a lot of work to find the the right price, but, like, the right price for an MP Unlimited Black Lotus might be 4700 to one person and 5600 to another person. So sometimes you're, like, kind of making the price, I would say, if there's if, if there's no really great data for it. You're, you're making your own price, essentially. Yeah, that happens all the time on Russian foils, as I've found yeah. multiple times. Also with like beta starters, like if you have one, you can ask whatever. Where else are you going to go for that? All right. Well, I think we covered that pretty well. Um, Scott, when you get a chance, send me a message on the Cartel Aristocrats Twitter account at cartel underscore finance or the Cartel Aristocrats Facebook page, and then I will send you your $25 gift certificate to coolstuffinc.com. If you want how to win. can people how can people win? Because I had someone ask me today on Twitter if they should leave a comment on YouTube for the question of the week. They and can't they win. They've been listening. They it's said they've been listening for over a year, and they asked me where to leave a question today. Well, they are lying. They were probably lying, and also I will screenshot me. it and send it to you after this cast, Travis. I believe that they wrote those words. I didn't say you were lying. Okay. 
Well, before you interrupted me when I was going to continue my spiel on how you could win next week, it is to leave a comment on gatheringmagic.com on the uh, post for our podcast, which should be going up on Tuesday, uh, June 26th. Uh, it might be Wednesday. It depends on if we're lazy or not. Um, and then your question gets picked. You can win the gift certificate. I know Jeremy said something there, but he roboted so hard we couldn't understand it, which I think we can all agree is for the better. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Sorry for my audio this week. Uh, there's a massive storm outside, which is why I am uh, against a wall instead of at my computer. Oh, so, so you're, you're saying be against the wall? You're, so, right? you're, so you're saying that's it's okay when there's factors that are outside your control for crappy audio? Got it. Got it. Well, man, I mean, man, Ed does not have any feelings about <laughs> that at all. Ed literally takes his mic and shoves it in people's faces at airports to try and get that background noise. We should do a True segment where, where Ed just asks random people, how much would you pay for this? And just shows them a magic <laughs> card. I'll, uh, I'll kickstart that. Uh, so real quick, before we kind of wrap this up and move on. To the- excuse <laughs> me, excuse me. How much would you pay for this magic card? Oh, do we need to find you the lost and found? Where are your parents? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's going to get dragged away by the TSA again. How uh, much will you pay for this engineered explosive, sir? This this ratchet bomb. <laughs> what, what does it do? Do you Ed's want this gonna, ratchet bomb? Um, gonna, Ed is going to end up in a detention center in South Texas in like three weeks. Ed, why do you have 65 powder kegs in your bags? Um, explosive jokes aside, uh, Scott, if you have any questions, and this is goes for people out there, like I'm generally okay with appraisals. A lot of people message me on Twitter or whatever, asking, assuming you like, assuming you don't want me to like appraise your collection, I'll be happy oh, to Ed, kind of. What? Did you have that listener message you about appraising his collection at Minneapolis? No. Okay. Well, he wants both of us to appraise his collection keep for insurance. All right. Uh, uh, Jeremy, I would recommend that we you do turn that too. the uh, camera off for now because <laughs> you're roboting out super hard and you might have a little bit more bandwidth. Your face you. sucks. <laughs> no, I just said uh, you would sound less shitty because you'd have more, I don't know. Maybe don't we can't make you look less shitty, so we can at least <laughs> make you sound less shitty. <laughs> we, uh, we had a listener ask us if he could, appra- if we could if he could get his collection appraised by Ed and I at GP Minneapolis for insurance reasons. What? He doesn't he can't he just look at like the retail prices of all the cards that he owns and call I it I guess day? having a signature from a officially licensed business helps. Oh, okay, good luck, Jeremy. Yep. What were you saying, Ed? Good luck, Jeremy. Have fun. Uh, all right. Uh, I, I think the point was again, like if people have like a question, like what do you want price this lotus at? Like, I'd be more than happy to, like, answer people's questions on Twitter. Again, assuming you don't bombard me with, like, you know, 5,000 pictures of, like, each individual Magic card you have over $100, then, uh, you know, these like, I'd be more than happy to answer people's questions. Yo, Ed, what's this MP Unlimited Giant Spider worth? I don't know. $2. You have to look at it. I have to show you so you can tell me if it's MP or not. Stop. Nice question. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know what happened, Jeremy. It looks like he died. Oh, no, I'm right. He's back. Are you back? Unfortunately. Yep. That's, yes, it is unfortunate. So what else is on the docket tonight, Jeremy? Ed, let's get into your question. I think it's a good way to wrap up the cast if we can each keep our answer under five minutes. Well, it doesn't need to be anywhere near that long. All right. Oh, you asked your question first. Oh, oh, God. Uh, so for people out there, it's the uh, it's the ultimatum game. Uh, you can look up on Wikipedia. There's like an entire article on it, about it. Uh, the question is this: uh, There's two parties. There's a person A and a person B. In this example, you can be person A. You you have no idea who person B is. Person B doesn't know who you are. Um, you have a hundred dollar bill and 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 a piece of paper. You write an offer on your piece of paper and you hand it to person B. Um, if they accept that number, that the, what you'll give them whatever you offer them out of your $100. Um, if they reject it, then you lose $100 and neither of you get nothing. Or neither of you guys get anything. So what do you make? What do you offer them? 
The correct answer is $1. A rational person will take it every time because it is one more dollar than what they previously had. So here's I, where Jeremy's wrong. Uh, or should I say, Jeremy is right on the first level, which is that a rational actor would always take the dollar. But humans are not rational actors, and you're actually supposed to give them, if I recall, it's something like 5 to $10 was like the highest rate of success. That's correct, but have, you watched the, but have you watched the season finale of Westworld yet? I don't watch Westworld. Well, you, then you offer them a dollar. Okay, so that's where that your answer was coming from, not the... No, I wrote a paper on this. The The correct response is to always offer them a dollar for a rational human being. Oh, well, sure, under that condition, but that's not the real condition of the question. That's not stated in the condition of the question. Yeah. Jim? Uh, I, I kind of agree. Like, I, I think that Jeremy's correct. I think you offer a dollar. I haven't, like, I don't know what the math is behind whether what, what the rate of return is if you offer them more, but there's no incentive for them to, to no-sir you unless they are just a dick. Like, well, the, inc the incentive what? is this guy's a jerk and it will only cost me one dollar to screw him. Correct. But like, a lot of there's a lot of people that will do that even for all hundred of the dollars or 99 of the dollars. There are some people that would do that. Yes. But right. I mean, but I don't, I don't know where the, where the point is you, where the rate of return, giving them more money is better than the amount that you lose, the amount of equity you lose by giving them more. But yeah. if you offer them $5, it's not that big a deal. It's not a big difference between a dollar and $5. But like, do you have to offer them 45? Do you have to offer them 60 to get a higher success rate? I don't know. I think that you just offer them a dollar and you hope for the best because you can't, you can't gauge what they're going to do, but there's no incentive for them to say no to you. Uh, did you ask this question because of Westworld, Ed? No, we talked about this because this is actually related to MGG Finance, believe it or not. There's, I don't just talk about random things for no reason. The reason this came up was because we were talking about different people at GPs, and we were kind of talking about different experiences as both a seller and a buyer, someone who's sold magic cards to vendors, and as obviously as a vendor, someone who buy, buys magic cards from people. It's what is an acceptable acceptable number to be paying, um, and like and by extension, kind of what makes a good buyer. Um, and we talked about this, like you know, uh, like let's use like Liliana Vale. Liliana Vale is a metric we picked because she's basically a hundred dollars. A hundred dollars is kind of it translates to this experiment. Obviously, there are some differences because you know you can chop around the card, like you have ways of getting rid of the card, whatever. But like, what is an acceptable amount to pay um, to get this card? Um, and we were talking like, you know, different strategies people employ. You have the stores, most LGSs, kind of the, the lower tier LGSs as, as it were, the ones that seem to want to screw people. It's like 33% cash, 40% cash, you know, like make up whatever number you want. Generally at the GPs, vendors offer like 50%. Um, the common trend seems to be like 66%. That's kind of the magic number because, if you on a hundred dollar card, if you sell a TCG player, if you calculate your fees to be what like eighteen point five percent on a hundred dollar card or whatever, you're left with seventy two dollars. You made six dollars on this transaction if you paid sixty six percent. Obviously, that scales. That works less well on like a two dollar card. It works differently on a thousand dollar card, etc. Um, and obviously, there are cases where this is a hot list card. You will see vendors paying like seventy, eighty, ninety percent. There will be vendors that will pay like one hundred ten percent on cards. Um, so it's just kind of like what strategy do you want to employ? Uh, my answer to this, in case people are wondering, the answer to the question was I said offer $1. My rationale was the same as Jeremy's. But at GP's, I will say my answer to the buying question, what do I offer, is I will say I will pay the maximum on the card every time. Um, there, will be, there will be vendors out there who will say that they – there are vendors who follow a fixed buy list. Star City Games, Channel Fireball, cool stuff. They follow fixed buy lists. It Our sponsor does not follow a fixed buy list, and you shouldn't misrepresent them. They have their own buy board now at Grand Prix on cards that they are paying over their fixed buy list. Oh, okay. I apologize. Like, the, I, 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 I should not say any of these things with 100%. For the most part, obviously, vendors have a discretion. There will be cards that they need. There will be cards that are in higher demand. They will pay more. Um, but... My experience doing school stuff is they're, they're buy, they have a buy list that's posted online. For the most part, at the GP, they will follow cards 
are the same as their online buy list. Hot buys or whatever on on the uh, whiteboard, notwithstanding, obviously. Um, there are a lot of vendors who buy cards kind of based on feel, as it were. Uh, it's like they like people said that one one uh, aspect of buying was trying to feel out the person. You have the customer who, hey, I just want to get out of my collection. I've done a magic. touching me. I'm just trying to buy a magic card. Um, I, they want to get out of their collection, and then some vendors would say that, oh, this person doesn't care. I don't need to be paying them top dollar on every single card because they're clearly looking to get out of magic. They're clearly not going through the effort of you know grinding out the dollars, top buy list, et cetera, shopping it around. You know, I can I, instead of paying sixty six percent, I might only pay fifty percent, for example. Um, so that was kind of where this like question originated is like, what is the number you should be paying, and and by extension, like what number should you be offering? So that was where the stock experiment came from. A very wise vendor once told me that if he doesn't want a card, he will pay between the worst buy list price in the room and the best buy list price in the room. And the reason for that is if you offer middle of the pack number on a card that you don't really want they're going to forget about the number you offered later on in the day and only focus on that vendor that offered an insane number and the vendor that tried to screw them with a very low number which to me is completely rational thinking yeah as i say like offering people money for their magic cards there's there's more equity be to be had and to be lost by offering too little or offering too much uh or i mean i guess offering too much is is off the table because you like obviously you're only going to offer a number that you can make profit on but yeah i agree there's I, I have a lot of people that are friends of mine that are very casual players and they have sold their gps and you know they may have sold all their cards or whatever cards they brought to a single vendor and then talk to me about it and they're like oh well you know this vendor was paying like twice as much money for your things you should have sold it to them they're not going to go back to that vendor in the future because they feel like they got ripped off or they feel like they didn't get enough money for their cards. So it's it's there's more equity to be lost than the one-time sale if you build a bad reputation because your reputation is also worth something. I just right. want to know why Ed doesn't think I'm funny. Because you're not. Let's wrap this podcast up. Where can people find us? Uh, my name wait, is Jim Kasai. Wait, find wait, me. pick the week. What happened? What happened? I was ready. Oh, did you have one? Are you ready? All right, Ed, go ahead. Do your pick of the week. Uh, I have gone back and started looking at Ixlon cards, rivals of Ixlon cards, kind of to prepare for rotation. Um, growing rights, oddly enough. I think I've picked this before, so this is kind of a crappy pick of the week, but I, I like this card. It's kind of balled them out. It's, it's kind of in a weird range where I feel like it has a potential to be broken. It's very clearly a casual card, so there's a floor on that. Um, Gilded Lotus hasn't like hit $1.50 that Jeremy has predicted. So it's very clear that there's like this card will see enough play. Um, even Wait, casual... which card did I predict? Gilded Lotus. Did it hit $1.50 yet? No, not even close. Darn it. I see them for two in cases. You can see them for two in cases. We had them for $2 at uh, the booth this weekend. I got a Gilded uh, Lotus close. for $2. I'm getting yeah, close. Say, what are you Col talking about? They're like two fifty on TCG player. Right, right. Two dollars. Two dollars. Two dollars is a reasonable buy if you want to sell it quickly. Two dollars is fine, especially if you have an overstock or whatever. Coalition uh, relic was three dollars at every Grand Prix or at Vegas, and I bought every single copy for three dollars in the room. Seems reasonable. It was a snap buy. TCG low is like five fifty on that. But back yeah. to Ed's pick of the week. Yeah, growing rights. It's it's popular enough that like it'll never be lower than it has it's, it was always it always started at like some insane number i think of like the highest pre-order is like 25 dollars or something it's gone down it's possible that deck breaks it like some sort of like sweet token based strategy that being said goblin chandler whirler kind of craps on token based strategies uh which is why i didn't pick like legion's landing i think legion's landing is also kind of in the same boat but obviously goblin chain whirler just completely destroys that card um but Growing Rights obviously has more applications. It's just like a very powerful card. And with Guy's Cradle being as expensive as it is, uh, it's possible that like this is a reasonable alternative for people to look at. All right. My pick this week is Angrath the Flame Chained. Uh, it's already started to pick up a little bit because it gets played in the Black Red Bit Range deck that's popular in standard right now. Uh, 
the most expensive planeswalker from Ixalan is Raska the Relic Seeker, which doesn't see a ton of play. Like it sees a play as like a one or two of most of the time, and that's like close to eight dollars. Uh, Engrath is only like three fifty or four dollars. I feel like this could easily double up if it continues to be played and continues to be popular. And it's also, I think, the only black red brawl commander that's available at the moment. But I could be wrong about that. Uh, I'm going to go with something that is a touch controversial, apparently. Uh, but I really like Enlightened Tutor promos. They're like 40 bucks for the uh, original Old Border Foil. Supply is almost non-existent. And uh, there's a new one. It's really popular. Price just keeps going up since it was released in EMA. It might not be as popular of art, but it is the original copy. It is the original border. It's the only way you're getting that card foil. If they reprint it, they're going to use the EMA art. They're not going to use the original one. It is truly a one-of-a-kind card. You're not going to see them again. Um, and price has gone up. I remember when it used to be 11 bucks. Uh, it's 40 now. So uh, it feels like this is just going to finally cross over into like 70 to to $100 territory. I dislike this pick extremely for a couple of reasons. You didn't uh, think that? No. One, it's been 40 forever, which you could take either way by saying, oh, it's time for it to move, or like there's actually no demand. Uh, I think your other podcast just did a segment about promos that are not going to be reprinted and are only going to go up. Uh, if I recall correctly, because I have a lot, there's like a lot of people talking about some of the other picks you called with like James tweeting out what he bought and all that. And this just feels like a pump and dump to me. I, I think you're just artificially inflating the price of this card. There's nothing to actually move this card. And I agree with Doug that the Eternal Masters ones are way more desirable. So to me, it just feels like you're pushing this for your own gain. Well, I own zero copies uh, and I specifically didn't buy any so that I could tell you your full shit on that one. And Got me. <laughs> also, and also, uh, Doug's point was that the art's not as popular and that that's why this one's a bad choice. But like, even if the EMA art is more popular, uh, the supply difference is dramatic. So it only has to be, you only have to have like 2% of the people like the original art more in order for it because the supply is so much lower. Um, and I mean, it can sit stagnant for a while. Lots of cards sit stagnant at close to zero supply and high, uh, high price for a while. And then finally just empty out. It's like 35,000 EDH decks. It's not getting less popular. Um, sometimes I think really it's just a case that people don't notice. And then someone like me points it out or somebody notices it or it gets written up in an article and they're like, oh yeah, this card is good. And then the last couple of people buy the copies and then it's, you know, they relist them and who's selling it for less than double the price. So I, I want to clarify that I own no copies and I was going to buy them, but I was like, no, I want to talk about this on cast. So I will not buy any. All right. Well, I like that you don't own any, but I still don't like this as a pick. Okay. When do I get to tell you? When do I get to tell you that it was good? Obviously, it's not uh, when it spikes. If it sells. If it whoa, sells, whoa, whoa. time out, time out. You know, we have a very we have a very important date coming up uh, for myself uh, mostly, but also for Ed and Jeremy. So you could use <laughs> that another uh, tipping point for when your your bet with Jeremy about whether or not uh, Enlightened Tutor is a good pick. I mean, I don't. I'm not giving it a time frame. Like it will probably be gone because I talked about it in the next week or two, most likely. I don't know if you're going to sell any copies anytime after that. You might see yeah. there might be one copy that sells a month, right? Like, so I don't know if you're going to see action on it right away. Well, I mostly just wanted to segue into uh, what kind of suit uh, Ed is apparently going to wear at my wedding. What kind of haircut are we getting, Ed? That's the real question. You, you said you're gonna, he's not going to get a haircut until afterwards. No, no, no. We're shaving his head the day of your wedding. No, he's not going to. No, we're not going to do that. I don't want to have to explain to anyone why he has no hair. Right. I actually want to look like a normal person at like Jim's wedding. So we're not going to have to explain to anyone why Ed has no hair when Jeremy's going to be walking around like uh, that dude who sells the coupons who he's going to be look, walking around looking like the Riddler. <laughs> I, I would only be so lucky if that's the case. Yeah. Shout out to Ed. We have uh, three months remaining on this bet before his head gets shaved. <sighs> At least my hair grows back fast. I'm probably gotta just you, gotta tell you, Ed, I'm not liking your odds on this one. <laughs> I, I, I know. I, 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 I literally am like, 
I don't know. Every time I check like my account in the morning, I just like have this like like brief moment of despair. It's like, oh god, Jeremy was right for once in his life. Ed, how do we know that your hair grows back fast? What if it doesn't this time? I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm almost thirty. Like my life is basically over next year, anyways, right? Like, like just like look at Travis, right? Like so. I don't know. I, wow, that was so, aggro. So first of all, Jeremy was, I feel like, right for the wrong reason. But second of all, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> he said your life's over. Yeah, we're all washed up. My life's over, Adam. Just, I'm just done. I mean, you're over thirty, right? Like, look at you compared to us. I don't know. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> look at me. What? It's I because he's living his best life, and you're just not. Apparently. You know? I don't know. We talked. We had to talk about this this weekend. So I don't know. I would say I. There are definitely Wait, times where I would trade my life for normal life. At times. Time. What's up? We had to talk about this. Uh, no, sorry, at the booth. At the booth, we were talking about like the magic thing. So my life. No, no, not not <laughs> your life specifically, but just life in general. We had some spare time at the booth. We yeah, established Stu was talking about that. We established earlier, I don't remember if it was before the cast or at the beginning, that you're homeless. <laughs> I'm not homeless. <laughs> that was before the cast. We should probably keep that off the cast. Uh, <laughs> Allegedly, these things happened. All right. I think Jim has a pick of the week still. Doesn't Jeremy have a pick of the week as well? Uh, My Mac is going to die. My Mac is going to die. I'm at 5%. Let's wrap this up. Yep. All right, well, uh, yeah, I guess you can find us next week, mostly the same time, mostly the same place. Is there anything else you want to close out with, Jeremy? Oh, I won't be here next week, I believe, but I'll let you know. Okay, well. I will be on the beach in a very sunny part of the world. Is it Florida? Our beach is quite It is close to Florida. Is it Alabama? It is close to Alabama. Is it Louisiana? You are going the wrong way. South Carolina. Yep, I'll be in Hilton Head. Um, All right. On a property for a week before I fly out to uh, Japan, I think. So I don't know if I'll have connection. All of the places Jim guessed were not nearly rich enough for it to be where Jeremy was going. Um, Well, thanks for listening, guys. Florida, there's not a lot of rich places near Florida. Yeah, uh, we will be trying to give away two gift cards next week. And if you enjoyed the banter at a level lower than what all of Brainstorm Brewery is now about, you can follow us on Twitter at cartel underscore finance, on YouTube, SoundCloud, and Facebook at Cartel Aristocrats, and of course on GatheringMagic.com. You can find Travis at Wizard Bumpin on Twitter. You can find Ed at Edwin13 on Twitter. And Jim is at P-H-R-O-S-T underscore. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next week. Shout out to people who've